We're in 2 Peter uh, tonight, 2 Peter chapter 3. And this chapter really focuses on the second coming of Christ. So as we celebrate the, the first coming of Christ this weekend in our Christmas services tonight, we'll be looking at uh, the second coming of Christ. I do pray that you're really refreshed this evening. Uh, it's a busy time of year, and I think a, a lot of times we run ourselves pretty ragged. Uh, and if we're honest, in the back of some of our minds, we're like, I'm kind of looking forward to when this is going to be done, right? Uh, and maybe you have your list of things that you need to, to, to get done or presents that need to, to wrap. Or, or maybe it has nothing to do with Christmas and it's just been a difficult season, a difficult time. Uh, pray that God would really minister to you tonight and, and refresh you. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are in sending your son and his first coming and his promised second coming. As we study the second coming of Christ, may it fill our hearts with hope. May we look forward with the anticipation to Christ's return. God, I do pray that you would refresh hearts tonight through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, those that need just a special word from you, we know encouragement comes when you speak to us, and would you be gracious to do that? Lord, for those that need comfort, Lord, I pray that you would just cause comfort to abound. Maybe this has been a very difficult year, and they're wore out, maybe even burnt out, that you would give, give comfort, that we could experience fellowship with you. We thank you that you open up fellowship to us. We do pray that you would bless the Christmas services this weekend, that you'd bring lost people, or maybe those that have fallen away from you. God, that you would pour out your spirit here, but throughout the churches in Colorado Springs. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter's coming close to the end of his life. This is his last letter, and it's a reminder. He's not bashful or afraid to say, let me remind you of some things. And the tone really is a loving father or a loving grandfather saying, I don't need to teach you something new. I need to remind you of, of these things. So the title of our message tonight is to, to be mindful. And there's really three categories that we see. To, to be mindful of scoffers. He's going to bring a highlight to, to scoffers. And then to be mindful of God's timing. That God, the way he sees time is much different than the way we view time. And then to be mindful of steadfastness. In this chapter, uh, we see three times in the Greek the, the phrase looking forward. And the idea is with anticipation, where you're looking forward to something, but you're also watching. And God wants us looking forward to the second coming of, of Jesus Christ. That, that's where our expectation is to be. So verse 1 of chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which... I stir up your pure minds by the way of reminder. This is my second letter. And he says, both letters are for the purpose of, of reminding you. If you're a, you're a parent, you know how much reminding you do, don't you? It's, it's a big job of, of being a, a parent. They say the mother of all teachers is repetition. And here, Peter's saying, I'm going to give you this reminder to your minds so that you'd be stirred up. And he says, your pure minds. And I, I like that. He says, this group of believers, you, you have pure minds. Your minds are set apart uh, for the Lord. 
And I desire that. That's what I want in, in my life, is to have that, that pure mind. And much of what Peter writes in this first paragraph has to do with the mind. And he says, I want your mind to, to be stirred up in the way of remembering. In verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commands of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Saying, being mindful of the words that were spoken of the Old Testament in the prophets. And then also of the apostles, the teaching of the New Testament. It's one thing to read the word, isn't it? It's one thing to hear a Bible study, maybe listen to a podcast. And it's another thing to to be mindful of God's word, to, to have God's word on our hearts and on our minds as we go through our days. And I don't know about you, but that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of, a lot of effort. The, the word of God just isn't naturally on my mind. It takes reading God's word. It takes memorizing God's word. It takes writing God's word down. And he says, I want you guys to, to be mindful of the things that were spoken in the Old Testament. Now, sometimes the Old Testament gets a bad rap, doesn't it? We kind of come from this perspective of, I don't know if I could ever read or understand the Old Testament. Do you ever feel that way? You know, man, there's just just so much there and putting together the timeline and and the different writers and those types of things. And and God would say to us, I want you to know the Old Testament. I want to stir you up in your minds through the Old Testament. What I appreciate about the Old Testament is it really gives us Old Testament stories of New Testament principles. So God will give us a, a principle like grace in the New Testament but then he'll illustrate it in the Old Testament. It's not that Jesus walks on the pages of our Bibles in Matthew 1.1. We see Jesus throughout the volume of the whole book. So maybe God's stirring you this year to, to take on reading the Old Testament. You know, read a couple chapters a day. You'll, you'll find yourself going through the Old Testament in 2018. But he's saying, you guys know the Old Testament but I want it to be on your mind. I want you to be mindful of the Old Testament. But then also the commands of the apostles. And the apostles are those original disciples of Jesus plus the apostle Paul. And God used them to give us the New Testament. And he's saying, I want you to be mindful of, of the things that we have commanded you as well. It seems that Peter knows the tendency to forget. And in verse 3, he shows us a group of people, scoffers, that willingly forget. So this is verse 3, knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So if you're taking notes, write down mindful of scoffers. Pay attention to, to scoffers. And the prophecy here is that in last days, scoffers will rise up. As we get closer and closer to the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's going to be more and more people that scoff at the promises of God. If you remember last week with chapter 2, it was primarily a warning against false teachers. And now in chapter 3, we see once again false teachers. What do you think of as a, as a scoffer? You know, what comes to your mind when you, you think of a scoffer? I, I almost think of, you know, someone scoffing at the Denver Broncos this year. Maybe being in the stadium and, and scoffing at uh, our, our orange and blue, you know. Or, or someone has a, an accomplishment and then you find a critic and they're going to point out what they perceive to be wrong and just scoff and, and laugh at it. You can probably think of a few scoffers as you were growing up 
in elementary school or, or, or middle school. Or maybe you can think of some scoffers at your workplace currently, you know. And here we're going to find that people scoff the promises of God. They scoff the, the word of God. So as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Christ, it's going to become less and less popular to study God's word, to be a person of God's word. And here Peter, all these years ago, is saying, look, I want you guys to be aware that more and more people are going to scoff uh, the word of God. So if that's true in Peter's day, how much more so is it true in our day? And are we seeing a culture and also the world as a whole more and more scoffing the word of God, just, just laughing at the word of God? And the specific areas that they, they scoff in verse 4 and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So first they scoff the second coming of Christ, this teaching so clearly from Christ that he's going to return upon the Mount of Olives. And they say, well, Look, look at all these generations that have passed away that we're longing for and waiting for the second coming of Christ and things are just gonna continue on as they've always been. It seems like there's a real attack in our hearts and our lives for the anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves tonight, I'm sure there's many times where we waver from that expectation. Maybe we start to even listen to some of, the, some of the scoffers and we go, you know, it's not even possible that the rapture of the church could happen in my lifetime. And maybe you even start to look down upon those that have lived with that hope and lived with that anticipation that maybe today is going to be the rapture. As much as we love Christmas, it would be wonderful if the rapture happened before Christmas, right? That would be the ultimate Christmas, to be in, in God's presence, a lot of people be wondering, like, what happened to all these gifts around the tree? Like, this whole group of people is just, is just gone. But the enemy and our flesh and these scoffers are going to want to push the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ further and further from our hearts and minds. How many people do you think had lost sight of the promise of the Messiah when Jesus was born in Bethlehem? How many scoffers were there that there would be a Messiah? How many studied the Old Testament promises and said, well, that's just not going to happen? To the point when Jesus came, they, they missed, it, missed it altogether. So the scoffers, they mock the second coming of Christ. And notice that they willfully forget. But this, they willfully forget that by the word of God, that the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. What do they willfully forget? The word of God, that God spoke, and the earth stood out of the water. They forget creation. These scoffers mock the second coming of Christ, and they also mock creation. And it's very descriptive in Peter's writing about how quickly creation took place. God spoke, and things were created. When you read the Genesis account, and you read John 1, it's very clear that God is speaking and things are happening. Creation is a response to the power of the word of God. This is amazing to me, and I think we're starting to see prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes because even amongst the Christian community, we're finding more and more creation is being debated and creation is being scoffed. 
The idea of theistic evolution is really growing. More and more believers are are buying into it. You might be saying, I'm not familiar with what that is. And it's the idea that God created things through the mechanism of evolution. And so that's how things came about is through through evolution. And God created the the process of, of evolution. The problem with that is it doesn't fit with the Genesis account. It doesn't fit with John chapter 1. It doesn't fit with with Peter's writings. And it puts us in a a bad place if we're beginning to find creation to be laughable. Now, call me old-fashioned, but your view of God as the creator really affects your theology. If God just put a process together in motion, evolution, and its survival of the fittest, does that fit with a heavenly father that gave his son? Does that fit with Psalms 139 that God is intimately equated with your life? That's very much a a very distant God that doesn't seem to care how things play out. And if you think about evolution, what's the fruit of evolution? Ideas have impact, don't they? What's the result if, if we believe that we evolve from animals? Well, survival of the fittest has to be true with evolution, doesn't it? So what's the big deal if there's abortion? Well, that, that's just somebody that's not going to be strong. So that, that needs to happen. That's part of the evolutionary process. What, what's the big deal with genocide? It, it, that's the fruit and the impact of, of that evolutionary worldview. And the theistic evolutionists will try to separate the two. They'll say, well, I, I believe that God created things through the means of evolution, but I see the real value of virtue and compassion. And it's like, well, wait a second. That doesn't fit with, with the worldview. You're, you're trying to, to separate it. I just think that the science doesn't support evolution. You know, when we look at DNA and we look at how intricately we're designed, it points to there being a creator. And one thing goes wrong and you don't have a person. You know, there's no opportunity for, for evolution. You're like, here, here we're going through, and it's like, hey, I don't have my right arm, you know? How's that going to work out? My wife, uh, she, she always jokes around and says, if evolution is true, then, then moms would get more arms after they've had two kids, right? <laughs> so we've got four kids, and so she would have four arms instead of, of just two. We don't see it in the fossil record. We don't see these transitional forms of someone going from an animal into, into a person. And I, I would encourage you, what's your worldview about God? What's your worldview about uh, creation? Because Peter here is bold enough to say, there's going to be scoffers in the last days that are going to scoff at, at creation. If you're laughed at because you view a God who created the universe, are you okay with that? Are you comfortable with that? Are you like, you know what? I, I don't have to fit into the cultural norm. I can read the Bible and I can, I can study the design that, that is around me and, and, and be comfortable in the fact that I know that, that God is the creator. I just find it interesting because it's very much currently under attack of God creating the universe. So they forget the second coming willfully. They, they forget creation and then they forget the flood in verse 6 by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. So they forget the flood. They willingly forget the flood. Another thing that is very much laughed at and and scoffed about in the secular world is this biblical teaching of the worldwide flood in the book of Genesis. That Noah and his family is saved, eight people, but everyone else was judged by the Lord because of their great wickedness. All three of these have to do with the word of God. The father speaks, the son returns. The son doesn't even know the day or the hour. But when the father says it's time, he speaks, the son's going to come. Creation, God spoke, and it was. The flood, God spoke, and there, there was judgment. Is there evidence for a worldwide flood? Some things that we find in people groups throughout the world, in their tribes and throughout their history and their tradition, they have a story of a worldwide flood. It makes sense. We also do look at the, the fossil record, and it points to a worldwide flood. Now, where does this lead in verse 7? Verse 7 tells us, that the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word. So we don't get to pick and choose what we believe about God's word. We either take it all or we don't. So here this word of God is preserving this physical world around us. Why do things continue to exist? Because God desires it to. Jesus holds all things together by his word, by his power. It's, it's preserved but it's also reserved for judgment until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So at one point, God's going to say, okay, that's enough, and it's time for the judgment of the ungodly and also the heavens and the earth. And, And this heaven and earth will pass away. We find several times in the New Testament this phrase, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God endures forever. God's word's eternal, but this physical universe is not eternal. In Isaiah 34, it says, The hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll, and their hosts shall fall down, and their leaves fall from the vine as fruit falling from a fig tree. The heavens being dissolved, the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? I mean, this physical world seems so permanent. You know, we think of Pike's Peak and all the generations that have gone before us and enjoyed that beautiful view of of, of Pike's Peak, but Pike's Peak is temporary. At some point, God's going to be like, okay, I'm done with Pike's Peak. I'm done with this this world. It's time for it to end. Time for me to to roll it up and wrap it up, and and here comes uh, the judgment of the Lord. But you see the progression. If you deny the second coming, You deny creation, you deny the flood, it's really easy in your own perception also to deny God's judgment. Now, this is never going to happen. The the heavens and the earth are are never going to pass away. In verse 8, here's a contrast. But beloved, so we're to think differently, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So, We're mindful of scoffers, but number two, we're mindful of God's timing. He says, don't forget, okay? 
Here the scoffers have willingly forgot, but I don't want you to forget this. Think of this lovable fisherman who had his own sin and his own struggles, but was restored by the Lord. And he says, gang, don't forget this. A thousand years to the Lord is like a day unto us. And the context is, when is Christ going to come? When is Christ going to make everything right? And Peter says, you know, it hasn't been that long from God's perspective. This is not a mathematical equation that, okay, a thousand years for us is one day to the Lord. It's an illustration. It's an illustration of saying we have an eternal God who lives in the forever. We live in the finite limitation of time. So we go through a thousand years. What's that in comparison to eternity? It's nothing. So from God's perspective, he hasn't been waiting very long since Christ was crucified he rose from the dead and ascended back to, to be with the Father. We see in our own lives the mystery of God's timing, don't we? Have you ever found God's timing to be your timing? Very rarely, if ever, right? He does things on his own timetable when, when he sees fit and when, when he pleases. So as things continue until the second coming of Christ... The second coming of Christ is going to happen right when the Father wants it to. And we go on to verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The word slack, it also means slow. God's not slow concerning his promises. It may seem slow from our perspective, but it's not slow from, from his timing. As fallible human beings, sometimes we're slack concerning our promises, aren't we? We've got good intentions, you know. We tell a friend, we tell our kids, hey, hey I'm going to do this, right? That's what I love about kids. They'll always remind you of your word. Dad, you said that you would take us to ice cream, you know, or Dad, you said you would, you'd play with me, right? I, and we can be slow concerning our promises. We can forget our word. But with God, he, he's not slack concerning his promises. I want you to hear this. This is not a maybe. This isn't like, well, maybe Christ is going to return. Maybe this earth is going to pass away. This is an absolute. We can, we can count on the character of God that he fulfills his promises. So why is God waiting? What, what is this issue of his timing that we're mindful of? Is he suffering long so that more people can come to repentance? What if God would have come back in 2016 and ra- wrapped everything up, right? How many people have gotten saved in 2017? How many people are going to get saved in 2018? And we try to imagine what some of God's suffering is. He sees all and he knows all. And sometimes when great evil happens, it breaks our hearts. You know, we think of the shooting that took place in the church in, in Texas and the loss of so much life, and, and we, oh, it just breaks us. And we're sinful humans. How much more so does it hurt God's heart? And yet he's willing to continue to suffer long. He's, he's continued to, to allow people to do evil and do wickedness with the hopes that some will repent. 
with the hopes that some will come to know Christ as their Savior. And I think when it's all said and done and we're with the Lord in glory, we're going to agree with him and go, oh, Father, it was worth it. I see why you were waiting. I see the purpose for for you withholding your judgment. And this reveals to us the heart of God, that God doesn't want any to perish, that God doesn't want any to go to hell. Will there be some that go to hell? Are there some in hell currently? Yes. Why? Because some choose to reject Jesus Christ as their Savior, but it's God's heart that all would be saved. All would be saved. What an amazing God that his sacrifice of his son is for all. He gives the invitation to all. So we go on into verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. The day of the Lord, speaking of God's judgment, it's going to come as a thief in the night. What's the message of that? Well, you don't know when a thief's coming. So for many, God's judgment is going to come as a surprise for unbelievers. I didn't expect this. I thought things were going to continue as they always were. No one told me, and if they did, I laughed at them, scoffed them right out of the building, scoffed them right out of, out of my house. When God's judgment finally comes, it's going to come quickly. That's the message here. The Lord's suffering long. He's giving people the opportunity to repent, but when the day of the Lord comes, it'll come as a thief in the night. This verse also tells us that the earth and the heavens will pass away with a fervent heat. The elements will melt with fervent heat. This is the only place in the New Testament that describes how this earth will ultimately be destroyed, how it will dissolve. It's going to be through fire. The flood was the Old Testament judgment, but this is the New Testament judgment where it burns up everything. It says the earth and the works that are in it are burned up. You think about the works that are in this earth that will be burned up. Super Bowl championships, right? Burned up. Stock market, Wall Street, it's gone. It's, it's burned up. Raises, burned up. Master's degrees, burned up. Doctorate degrees, burned up. And the student loans that went along with that, right? <laughs> you know? Houses, burned up. Cars, burned up. I mean, you, you, you fill in the blank. All of that is going to be dissolved. And this earth is going to be dissolved as well. And then this provokes a question in verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So in light of this earth being burned up, in all of its works, what kind of person should we be? What, what should our priority be? And God tells us it should be holiness and godly conduct. All of a sudden, our mission, our vision gets really clear, and it's to know Christ and to glorify Christ. So does that mean that Super Bowl has no value? Does that mean education has no value? That a car or a house knows, has no value? And should we basically just, just punt, right? I believe that playing on a sports team can have great value. 
But it's not about the championship. It's about doing your best for the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it wholeheartedly under the Lord. That would include football. People can be reached through sports if we're doing it for Christ. Does this mean that a home is a bad thing? It could be if it's an idol. Or a home could be a place that's used by God to reach people, to edify families, for kids to hear about the Lord and be loved and nurtured and in marriages to flourish, people to be welcomed in, believers to be encouraged, Christ to be glorified, right? So it's not that these things are wrong. It's the motivation of our hearts. It's, it's how we go through our lives. What am I focusing on? And what my, what's my priority? What am I, am I living for? If this, this is all gone, am I living for Christ? To know him and to live for, for his glory. Why do you think God used David with Goliath? Why, why did God use this young boy with red hair, with a crazy perspective that a slingshot and five smooth stones might actually take out this giant? Because David had resolved something in his heart that he was living for the glory of God. He says, this is wrong because Goliath is taking from God's glory, and I believe that God will honor his name. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, what are we saying? We're saying, I'm living for your name. All this is going to get burned up, but your name, who you are, your character, your nature, that's what I want to be, be living for. But this physical world is so physical, we can see it, we can feel it, we can touch it, we can check a bank account, we can kick the tires, right? We can flush the toilet. It's physical, you get it. That it's easy to forget about the spiritual reality. But you know what's really going to last? Is the spiritual reality. Seek first the kingdom of God. That, that's what it's all about. It's a great question, difficult question. In verse 14, or verse 12 looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're commanded in verse 12 to look and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. This, this day of judgment, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we're also told in verse 13 to look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are we looking for the second coming of Christ with anticipation, expectation, watching, longing? The Republicans aren't going to make things right. The Democrats aren't going to make things right. Who's going to make things right? Christ. Do we get involved? Absolutely. Why? Do all things to the glory of Christ and in the name of Christ. But as we're involved in these world systems, our hope isn't there. We're looking to the coming of Christ. We're looking to the new heaven and the new earth. Imagine your imagine. Allow your imagination to go there to a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah prophesies of of the lion laying down with the lamb and kids being able to play in the streets and not face danger and those types of things. And Jesus is gonna make everything right. 
in the new heaven and the new earth. He's overcome this world. We rejoice in that. How about verse 12? Let's have a little fun there. We get to looking for the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. But what about this hastening? Hastening the coming of Christ. How could we hasten the coming of Christ? Well, why is the father waiting to send the son so more people can get saved? So from the text, it's really clear how we would hasten the coming of the Lord. Tell people about Jesus. Share the gospel. More and more people get saved. And at some point, the father's going to be like, okay, it's time. The, the work is done. It's, it's complete. It's now time for judgment. It's now time for uh, the second coming. So the way we hasten the coming of the Lord is to share Christ, to share the gospel with those that don't know the Lord. In verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. Have you ever known someone that's so excited about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ that they're pretty much a deadbeat in this life? They take no responsibility for their actions. They don't care about anything. And they're just like kind of ho-hum and, hey, Jesus is coming back. So praise the Lord. Sweet. Well, what does God's word tell us to do? God's word tells us to be diligent. As we're looking forward to these things, we're diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish. If we really understanding the second coming of Jesus Christ, it should move us to faithfulness. Not checking out. Not you know, getting a bunch of credit cards and going, well, hey, Jesus is coming back, right? I'm not going to have to worry about that. Verse 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, and also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Think about God's long-suffering, his long-suffering to desire for people to be saved, in the Greek, the Greek word that we translate into English, consider, is an imperative, meaning it's a command. God wants us to stop and really consider his long-suffering. How much he loves people to give them more time to be saved. My great-grandma, I had the opportunity to know my great-grandma. She died at 101. Naomi Watson came across on the Oregon Trail and ended up in Oregon, never, never left, Eugene, Oregon. She received Christ as her Savior at age 99. 99. That's God's patience, isn't it? <laughs> Kept her alive for 99 years. And she would politely just express that Jesus and the gospel wasn't for her. And then on this particular day, she called my parents from the home that she was living in, and, and God had touched her heart, and she understood grace, and, and she got saved. That's the kindness of God. Can you imagine going through 99 years without Christ and then finally going, Uncle, <laughs> I give up, you know. Je Jesus saved me. And Jesus didn't go, well, you know, you're a knucklehead. You waited 99 years. It's like, I, I was just waiting for you to say yes. The long-suffering of, of the Lord. Peter brings up Paul's writing in verse 16. He says, And also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of Scripture. 
Because some of Paul's writings are hard, they're difficult, you have to study, think, pray, compare it with other scripture. There were those in Peter's day that were twisting Paul's writing and causing people to go astray, causing to be people to be destroyed. And Peter also says that this is what people do with all of the, the scripture. So don't get discouraged, you know? That's the amazing thing about God's word is there's some things in here that are difficult enough that we'll get to study for the rest of our lives. We'll understand more and more as we read the scripture and study it and press in uh, to the Lord. So don't let someone come in and twist a difficult section of scripture. So how do you know if they're twisting it? Well, the common sense makes the most sense. So if someone comes alongside and they're reading a passage of scripture, and they're saying, I know it sounds like this, but it really means this. You should have your warning lights go, go on with that. Also, a good way to see if someone's twisting scripture is does it line up with Jesus? Does it line up with the book of Acts? Does it line up with the writings in the epistles? If the answer is no, they're, they're twisting it. They're twisting it. God desired his word to be understood. We can read God's word and understand it for ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a pope. You don't need a pastor. You don't need those things to be the filter for the word of God. You can go to the word of God yourself and really know if someone's giving it to you straight. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. Last thing we're mindful of is steadfastness. He says, beware, pay attention, lest you fall from your own steadfastness and be led away down this air of the wicked. Peter had to have seen this happen. People that he loved and he cared for, people that he was invested in, people that he did not think would, would fall away. And he says, I want you to pay attention to your steadfastness. Continue being steadfast. Continue pressing into the Lord. Continue loving him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength so that you don't go down this path of of wickedness. The deception's real. Our flesh is real. That temptation upon our hearts and our lives. If you're going strong in Jesus, keep going. If the journey feels long, and you're like, oh, this is a lot harder than what I anticipated, keep going. Keep going. Don't give up on your steadfastness. Settle some things in your heart and say, you know, as long as I'm here on this planet, these are some things that I'm going to do. I'm going to pursue the Lord. What is it that causes you to have fellowship with the Lord? Write it down and say, I need to make sure that I'm having prayer time or maybe worship or maybe serving or time in God's word and say, I'm going to be steadfast. And we'll have difficult times and We'll have days where we blow it and we sin, but it's so important to get up in those times and to continue walking with the Lord. Was Peter perfect? No. But did he give up? No. He continued walking with the Lord, receiving God's forgiveness, being steadfast in the Lord. So here's how we're steadfast. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen grow in grace. That's how we stay steadfast. Growing in grace is understanding more and more how much we need the grace of God. What a unique thing to grow in. (laughs) 
Are you realizing the longer that you walk with the Lord, how good he is, how holy he is, and how flawed we are? And how much you need currently God's grace in your life, that's exactly where God wants you to be. Because that's the absence of pride and the reality of humility. Continue to grow in realizing your need and dependency upon God's grace. Lord, would you move in my life through your grace? Would you help me to know you by your grace? Would you use me by your grace? I'm trusting in your grace. But there is a flip side to grace. And that is, as we know about receiving God's grace more and more in our lives, then God also desires and expects us to extend more grace. Are we growing in being gracious? If I'm growing in receiving grace, then also I should grow in giving grace. And what's grace? It's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. It's not giving people what they deserve. Going, God, today, you didn't give me what I deserve. You've been gracious to me. So I, I can freely give the mercy that I've received. I can freely give the grace that I've received. And that's the mark of Jesus in our lives. If we're becoming more gracious, we're becoming more Christ-like. Grace meant that Jesus paid the price. Sometimes in giving people grace means we pay the price. And it may be brutal and it may be difficult and it's hard. And the Lord's saying, you're growing in grace. You're receiving grace and now you're learning to extend grace to others and then growing in the knowledge of Christ. This is the personal and intimate knowledge of Christ. The greatness, the vastness of Christ. That he's greater than the angels. He's greater than the old covenant. Brings us into the new covenant. That he's the creator of the universe and the express image of the Father. Say, God, this is my heart for 2018. Would you help me to grow in grace and the knowledge of you? And as long as we're growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's going to result in steadfastness, amen? It's going to result in being right where God desires for us to be. So let's close in prayer. Father, we just ask that you would awaken our minds, that we would have pure minds, that we wouldn't willfully forget the word of God, creation and the flood and the promise of your uh, second coming. And as we look at your timing, it feels so long from our perspective. But we know that you're waiting in order that more people could be saved. And we pray that we could be a part of that. That you would use our lives to share the knowledge of Christ. We see the reality of getting off track. We see the reality of losing our steadfastness. So Lord, would you help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of you? We thank you for your faithfulness in 2017 and we, we pray that in 2018 we could press into you. So Lord, would you use your word in our lives? Jesus, we look forward to you coming back. We look forward to you ruling and reigning and you setting everything right. Help us to understand that this world and its works are gonna be burned up and we could fully live for you in whatever we're doing. God, I just pray for those that need your strength, that need your comfort, that need your refreshment, that you would meet them and you would bless them and that you would meet all of us in this time of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.